The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing once again upon our time, upon your word as it goes forth, your holy inspired word, your word which in your confidence, uh, this day we have turned to Esther chapter 6. And so you have something for us this very day. And we ask that you would richly bless your word to your people for our growth, edification, our sanctification. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Change our hearts, O God, as we hear your word. Sanctify us, your church. Persevere us in the faith. Preserve our unity. Help us, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things we desire most is honor. And honor is a special recognition, uh, respect, even a high respect, and being esteemed. Now, because we're filled with pride and selfishness, uh, we often seek these for ourselves in the wrong way and for the wrong purposes to exalt ourselves above others. But wanting honor in and of itself is not a bad thing. We're called to honor those to whom honor is due. Romans 13, 7. If that was a bad thing, God would never have commanded it. We are to treat fellow image bearers with the dignity that they deserve because they've been made in the image of God. In fact, according to the covenant of works in Romans 2, God says that those who seek honor and glory and immortality, so seeking honor, he will give eternal life. Of course, we can't do that because we have fallen and uh, we have forever not been able to fulfill the covenant of works. Uh, Christ came and did that for us. And because he did that for us, we, as we saw in Hebrews 2.10, have been brought to glory, bringing many sons to glory. And glory and honor, those are really the same uh, things. In fact, the opposite of that is shame. The opposite of honor is shame. And shame is part of the curse. It is uh, something that comes with having fallen into sin and it's a punishment. Hence, Adam and Eve, the very first thing they felt when they fell into sin, they felt their nakedness, which is just another way of their shame. So honor is not a bad thing, but how do we go about getting it is the question. Or the better question is, who is it that the king delights to honor? And that's actually the focus of our passage today. Who is it the king delights to honor? And it's not about King Ahasuerus. It's about the greater king. And we see our king's fingerprints all over this story. Him bringing about the honor of his people while he brings about the shame of his and their enemies. So three considerations when answering the question, who is it that the king of kings delights to honor? Uh, We're going to see sovereignty. Second, uh, seeking, that is, uh, we don't seek it for ourselves. 
uh, the Lord grants it. And then third, uh, the seed. So first, God sovereignly brings it about according to his will. Uh, we see in verse 1, on that night the king could not sleep. Now, if you remember, this is the night after Esther's first feast and before Esther's second feast. Remember, she had gone to the king in order to plead with him to save uh, her people. And she threw a feast for the king and Haman. And the king says, well, what is it that you want? And she started to give him the answer, but then she said, come to a feast tomorrow and I will tell you. So this is the night in between both uh, those two feasts. And it's on this very night that the king just so happens that he can't sleep. But this is a very important night because Esther is about ready to reveal to the king that his top advisor has tricked him with an evil plot. Would the king even believe her? Would the king lash out in anger against her? How dare you insinuate that? And then include her in the execution when he realizes that she's one of the Jews. I mean, what a way for the king to find out who his wife is. We, again, have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. She doesn't know. So you can imagine how she is feeling before she goes and tells the king something that really can cost her her life. But we also have the benefit of seeing how the king of kings is working behind the scenes here. And we see that the king of kings is working behind the scenes in that King Ahasuerus could not sleep that night. And the way that the book of Esther is arranged, it's called a chiasm. It's a basically a Hebrew poetic uh, device where the center of the chiasm is really the, the center or theme of a passage or a book. It's the Hebrew's way of taking a highlighter and say, here's the, here's the important thing. Here's the whole point. And right here, the whole central point of the book, center of this book, where everything hinges on, the center of this chiasm, is on that night, the king could not sleep. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to highlight. That's what the Holy Spirit is pointing his divine finger to. And I want you to notice how mundane This is the center of the book. This is the highlight and emphasis. Now, how many of you have this verse underlined or highlighted in your Bible? Or if you think that's sacrilegious, how many of you have this as your memory verse? Or verse of the week? Or hanging up on your refrigerator? Or in a coffee mug? On that night, the king could not sleep. Now I know what my next gift is going to be from Doug. I got a, a coffee mug once that said, if a man gores another man's ox, or an ox gores another man's ox, so, so now I know what my Christmas gift is going to be. On that night, the king could not sleep. So why does the Holy Spirit highlight this verse for us? Uh, why is this the center of the book of Esther? Well, it's because this is the pivotal point in the book of Esther. It's the turning point. It's when God begins to reverse things. 
The enemy who is honored and joyful now is starting to become shamed and fall before Mordecai in his mourning. Well, Mordecai's mourning begins to be turned into joy. And he begins to be honored. But God does this in the most mundane and smallest of ways. The king simply could not sleep and a record book is read. It's not through angels raining down fire from heaven, which God could do and has done. It was not through some extraordinary miracles that God is working. Rather, it was through something as mundane as the king not being able to sleep that very night. And there's really nothing keeping him up. He wasn't anxious about anything or had a troubling dream like Pharaoh did in Joseph's day or King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel's day. He just simply couldn't sleep that night. And I think it is important for us to realize this. God not only works through mysterious and extraordinary ways, He works through mundane ways. We like the extraordinary. We want there to be extraordinary things, dreams, visions, miracles, because those things cannot be denied as being from God. And it gives us a sense that He is with us and that He is in it. We want a sign from God, something extraordinary that stands out to excite us and confirm to us that God is really near us. But God in His sovereignty orchestrates even the smallest, most mundane things. Even the things that do not stand out to us. This is important to see, especially when God is hidden. Remember, that's the book that's the theme of the book of Esther. When God is hidden, God's name's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. God is still there. God is still working, even in the smallest, most minutest, mundane detail. A sleepless night for the king puts an important chain of events into motion. And so in a seeming attempt to solve his insomnia, the rest of verse 1 says that he asked for the book of Chronicles to be read. Uh, this is not a riveting story. Uh, this is not high entertainment. This is not your nice bedtime story. This is a record book. Uh, you can see why he wants that read, because that's going to solve his insomnia. Uh, there may be some interesting details, but, but reading something tantamount to court records would be quite boring. I mean, which would you rather uh, read or see? Uh, a court drama or just the clerical records being read to you? Well, obviously we would want something more engaging and exciting than just the records. Well, he just asked for the records uh, to help him sleep. But on this very night, when Haman's going to ask Kai to be hanged, they coincidentally come to the part of history where Mordecai revealed the plot against the king's life in verse 2. Now, to understand the significance of this, this, this record book from which they're reading is not two pages. Or the last thing that happened uh, written in the record book was not uh, this incident with Mordecai. In fact, commentators point out, uh, 
looking at the book of Esther, that this event with Mordecai happened five years prior. And this record book would be thick. It would contain a lot of different details. And so out of all things being read, they turned to something that happened five years prior. Mordecai, on the night that Haman is coming to want to ask to kill him. What are the chances? And yet we see that God is sovereign even over this minute mundane detail of what page a book gets turned to. We see that God is working even in this. And the king is then alarmed that nothing has been done for Mordecai, verse 3. Now this would be greatly unacceptable, not only according to Persian culture that wants to honor and recognize people, but also for the safety of the king. If somebody risks their life to save the king's life and nothing is done for him, that's not going to encourage others to do the same. And so the king says right away, in his typical impulsive nature, something needs to be done. Who's in the courtyard? Whoever it is, uh, get that person to do what, what I want. And guess who it happens to be? Haman. Again, just chance, right? And this is where we get into some real irony in God's providence. Where it says in verse 4, Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So at that very moment, Haman just happened to be in the court to ask uh, the, 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 the king that he may kill Haman. Haman is on both of their minds. Just so happens that Mordecai is on both of their minds. But with Haman, he wants to kill him. The king, he wants to honor him. And so Haman comes into the court, and Haman must think this is his lucky day. Because he doesn't need to wait for the king to grant him permission to come into his presence. As he enters the court, suddenly someone comes out and says, come into the king's presence. Like, hey, this is my lucky day. But we see in all of this that God is sovereignly working out his plan without Mordecai even knowing it. God is working behind the scenes for Mordecai's protection and honor. And we also see that God is working for Haman, the enemy of his people's shame. And this brings us really to the second consideration when, seeking, when answering the question, who it is that the king, if kings delights to answer, answer honor, and that is a seeking. Whereas Haman sought honor and glory for himself, Mordecai did not. However, Mordecai was honored while Haman was shamed. And so verse 6, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king like to honor more than me? So Haman's attention gets turned from asking the king to shame his enemy to his own honor. And even the way the king asks this is a small mundane detail in the sovereignty of God. Because there's no indication that the king knows Haman's intent. But even the way that the king asks it, not trying to hide anything from Haman, is kind of an ironic turn of events. Because remember, Haman hid the identity of the people 
whom he wanted killed, the Jews. Now the king hides the identity of the one whom he wants to honor. Not intentionally, but just in the sovereignty of God. Now to us, this is funny and entertaining. It's ironic. But what God is doing in this irony is shaming Haman. It's poetic justice, as we call it. His own words and plot fall back on his own head. And so Haman, in his deep pride, falls by his own words. He thinks to himself, well, of course, no one else would delight to honor more than me. He thinks so highly of himself that he can't possibly imagine whom the king would want to honor besides him. And so Haman seeks his own honor in the counsel he gives the king in verses 7 through 9. He basically gives his own fantasy in this counsel. He, it involves wearing the king's robe and riding on the king's horse, wearing the king's royal crown. In the ancient Near East, this is how one would be declared to be the next king in place of the king. We see David does this for Solomon. And so what Haman is doing here is he wants the honor and recognition of the king himself. Because think about what he has. He really has it all. Uh, he has the king's authority. Remember, the king gave him his signet ring. He had the king's ear. The king basically did whatever he asked. He had much riches. Remember the 10,000 talents he paid uh, to the king uh, for the destruction of the certain people. He had the special privilege of being in the king's presence and dining with him and being the only other person invited to this banquet with the king and the queen. He had all of this. But what he did not have is the public recognition and honor of the king himself. In fact, one of the things that made uh, Haman so angry was that Mordecai did not give him that public recognition. Remember uh, what, Mordecai, what uh, Haman said? All of this is nothing to me if I, because Mordecai doesn't honor me. So he's really looking for public honor. He's looking for public recognition. And so Haman is seeking this for himself and gives the king basically what he wants. But in a completely unexpected turn of events in the sovereignty of God, the very public honor that Haman lusted after and that he wanted to brutally kill Mordecai for, he ends up having to give to Mordecai himself. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Now you can imagine Haman's excitement when he first hears this. Kind of in slow motion, right? Hurry! Well, that sounds great. I don't have to wait for this. This is wonderful. Take the robes. Yes, I want to wear the king's robes. All right. My fantasy's coming true. I'm going to be identified with the king's honor. And the horse. Yes, I get to ride on the king's horse too. Even further identifying as having the king's honor. According to his, as you have said, oh boy, I'm getting exactly everything I 
want and do so. Yes, goody. To Mordecai. What? Oh, and just to add injury to insult, the Jew. Those are the people I want to destroy. And I got to do this to Mordecai, the Jew, the very person I hate the most. And Haman could not argue with the king. Neither could he even show any emotion. Because you can die if you showed any sadness in the king's presence. I have no idea how he held it together. Uh, this, this gets to the heart of what he wanted and his hatred for Mordecai. And so, the very honor he wanted for himself, he has to give it to the person he hated the most. But now, Haman is spending the day fulfilling his fantasy for the person that he wanted to kill. Giving this public honor to Mordecai. The one that he wanted to kill for not giving him the public honor he desired. And this led to Haman greatly mourning. We see this in verse 2. He goes home, his head covered, he has ashes on his head. Typical way of mourning. So now the tables have turned. Remember in chapter 3, Mordecai had no honor from the king. But it was Haman who was exalted and promoted to the highest honor. At the beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai was mourning with his head covered because of the decree against the Jews. Now Haman is mourning and has his head covered. While Haman was seeking honor for himself, he did not receive the honor he wanted, but had to give it to his enemy. And then notice what happens with Mordecai. After he gets this honor, he goes back to the king's gate. He goes back to work another day. He really was not seeking honor for himself, even though he did something deserving of honor, but he didn't complain about it or seek it for these five years. And he receives it? Great, going back to the way things are in my work. God is the one who sovereignly worked out the honor that he did not seek. And a third consideration when answering the question, who it is that the king delights to honor, and that pertains to the seed. Verse 13, And Haman told his wife, Jerish, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his, wi then his wise men and his wife, Jerish, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They changed their tune. If you remember, they said, you should uh, make gallows and kill Mordecai. And Haman says, that sounds great. But now they're saying you're going to fall before him. Why did they change their tune? Well, remember that people were not atheists back then. They all believed in many gods. They even believed the God of Israel existed. They just didn't worship him. But when they saw what was happening, even they could not miss the clear providence of God and that this God has caused Mordecai to, or Haman to fall. And if he was able to do that, then he was going to continue to have him fall. And what is particularly important to note is what they say of Mordecai. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to, 
begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, literally from the Hebrew, it says, if Mordecai is of the seed of the Jews. That word seed is important. You know why? Well, because the two seeds is the storyline of the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That's how the Bible is going to unfold. When God said to Satan, there's going to be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And this is playing out here. And it gets played out through the Jewish line. That becomes the seed of the woman through whom the seed, the Christ, would come. And so they recognize here, the reason why you're going to fall, Haman, is because this one is of the seed of the Jewish people. Obviously, this God, their God, is in control because you are beginning to fall. Mordecai is of the seed of the woman. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is of the seed of the serpent. Haman represents Satan, who in his great pride wanted to exalt himself as God. This is spoken of in Isaiah 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembling the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. Satan in his pride wanted to be exalted as God. But God caused him to fall. And will cause him to fall. And we see that reflected here in Haman. This storyline of the Bible, this story going on right here in Esther, takes us back to Genesis 3.15. But Satan's downfall comes through the humiliation of the seed. That the Son of God who would assume our humanity be the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, he would come being a man of sorrows, wearing ashes on his head his whole life, as it were. But his sorrow would be turned into joy. Even though he would be betrayed, the Satan working through Judas, entering his heart to betray the Son of Man, working through evil men to crucify the Lord of glory, to crucify the Son of God, but it was on that hanging that Satan hung himself. Colossians 2.15 says that it is Satan who was put to open shame at the cross. The cross of Christ was his defeat. as his power over God's people. Where he held them in slavery due to fear of death. Was taken from him. Because who can bring a charge against God's elect? What fear of death, what fear of condemnation do we have? Because there's no condemnation for us. Because Christ, the seed of the woman, was condemned for us. In that hanging, Christ hung on the cross, was Satan's hanging. 
And Christ's mourning has been turned into laughter. Christ, though He despised the shame, He did it for the joy set before Him. Christ has been raised from the dead, forever conquering sin, death, and the devil. And all the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil, who try to rise up against God's children, the church will eventually fall. The world hates us. The world wants to eliminate us. They may have power for a time to persecute and mistreat us as Haman did. But because we are of the seed, the offspring of Christ, they will not succeed against us, but will fall. And so we do not seek honor for ourselves, but we wait on the Lord who sovereignly works it out according to His own will, even in the most minutest and mundane of details. And beloved, we who are in Christ, though we did not seek it, and though we certainly do not deserve it, will be publicly honored and brought to glory and honor, not because of anything we have done, but because we are of the seed of Christ. Because we are in Christ. And Christ, by His work, has brought many sons to glory. Because we are washed in His blood and clothed in His righteousness, we are wearing the King's robe. Because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. And our filthy nakedness was imputed to Him. He took the fall so that we may be Exalted as a completely free gift by faith. And these are the ones whom the King of Kings delights to honor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your gift of salvation. We thank You for the righteousness of Christ. We thank You for, as we even see in Luke 15, when the, the prodigal son comes back covered in his muck and shame, that the king takes his very robe and puts it on his son. This is what you have done for us. And while we will never receive the honor and glory due to you alone, yet at being co-heirs of Christ, we do sit on his, uh, sit with him, seated with him, reign with him, but giving all glory and honor and praise that is due solely to him as God, to him alone while we receive glorification, honor, our shame forever covered because of the righteousness and blood of Christ. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.